Today's reading from Genesis chapter 27, verses 18 through 40. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice, of, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of, your, of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you and bless be everyone who blesses you. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that he, that you may bless me. His father, Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not a reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants and And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Quite a lengthy portion of scripture here. Initially, it was going to be to the end of the chapter, but as I was writing it, I decided that it would be better to see it in this section here before we move on to the last. As we pour deeper into the events of the life of Jacob, we'd see what we call today a dysfunctional family. And as I called it, putting the fun in dysfunctional. Um, Because that's about the only joke you're getting for today. It's not a fun story. There is no fun in it. I just put it there because I thought that that would be funny. But there is no fun in this dysfunctional family. In fact, things go from bad to worse to even worse. One thing that should be very obvious and eye-opening to all of us is this. You should not try to gain a godly outcome using ungodly means. God does not believe that ends justify the means. Yet, generation to generation, person to person, all of us have tried to do this. We want a godly means so that then we think anything, a godly outcome, so we think anything to get that outcome is justified, but it is not. Just because God uses all things does not mean the use in of, the, of those things is always going to be something godly or something that God will smile about. In fact, Jacob right here, the sin we'll see today will carry throughout his life. His sons will take up this mantle against him. And they will do, they will do to him what he's done to his own father, trick him, play another part in order, to, in order to get what they want, just as he has done. Last week's message was about the motivations of the heart. The motivations in, behind the actions of the rest of this chapter. The thoughts and intentions of our heart are, the, are where these actions and words come from. When we lash out, whether physically or verbally, we will say things, I don't know where that came from. Yes, we do. Out of the overflow of the mouth, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We do what we believe. Faith without works is dead, meaning what we do is what we truly believe. We've already seen in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they desire the fruit first. They see it's good for food, and then they pick it. Abraham told the king of the Philistines that when he came into his country, he believed that there was no fear of God at all. He believed it. It wasn't true. Now, Jacob knows that God has chosen him over his brother Esau, but he doesn't desire God's will. He just desires for his own selfish ambition. From their hearts do people act. You may be familiar with the word catastrophe, and that's what the end of this chapter is. It's a catastrophe. It's a good family that's been ripped apart, but it will be mended. So I want to tell you another word here that was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it was eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien coined the phrase by affixing the Greek prefix eu, eu, meaning good, to catastrophe. The word catastrophe traditionally means in classically inspired literature of that of, of, that of an unraveling or a or unraveling or, or a dread conclusion to a plot. The events of the patriarch's life that we've been talking about, Jacob, they go from bad to worse. He is driven from this land from here. He is tricked by his future father-in-law. Right now, Right now, it is his own dealings that lead to his problem and misery. In the future, it will be his own sons that lead to his misery. Then he comes to Egypt towards the end of his life. 
and his second youngest son, who he thought was torn apart by animals, he sees alive and well. There's the eucatastrophe. Tolkien said the, incar- in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Christmas, is the eucatastrophe of the human race. And the resurrection, the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. On Good Friday, the devil thought he won, but on Easter Sunday, he found out something very different. Last week was a very, this whole section right here until we get to, until Jacob wrestles with the angel is going to be very bleak. It's going to go kind of from bad to worse. And so I want to, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you something of Jacob's life, but I want to remind you something of your own life because maybe in your own life, you're going through a time of bitterness. It's bleak. Maybe it's your own fault. Maybe it's the fault of others. Maybe it's just the result of living in this, in this, in this damaged, sinful world. I want to remind you of three things. This isn't the last word. What we see here today with Jacob deceiving his own father of hurting his brother Esau and Esau bellowing in rage. It's not the last word. I don't know where your life is at right now, whether good or bad. If it's good, I want to let you know that good times don't always last too. You know, the constants of life has changed. This isn't the last word. The last word is with Christ. The resurrection is the last word. We were asked today in Sunday school, knowing about the glorification, meaning our life forever with the Lord. How does that change the way we live? Well, it gives us great boldness, great encouragement, because we understand the last word is the resurrection. Two, God takes our messes and turns them into messages. So if you have a mess right now, know that he looks to turn that into a message. Right now, that's what we're reading about today. We read throughout this chapter. What an incredible mess. And it's Jacob's own fault. But that mess is now a message to us. That look at what God does with this deceitful heel grabber. What can he do with you? If God forgives him, if God makes him into if God makes him to Israel, what will God do in your heart and in your life? God takes our messes and turns them into messages. Here's the third one. Look at this from the lens of the gospel. Look at your life constantly through the lens of the gospel. The gospel was not just good for us when we got saved. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. For the one who believes, it is their great encouragement that every day they look at their good works and they bless their Father in heaven because they realize it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not my own actions. I'm not more holy than someone else. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it also reminds me of where I'd be without the Lord. We just read it. We just read some of it, some of the dysfunction that God saves us from. Look at it through the lens of the gospel. Do you have a loved one right now who's going astray? Maybe they even believe sometime in their life, but now they are going into this period of, of, of recklessness, this period of like the prodigal son going to the faraway land, living riotously. Look at that through the lens of the gospel and know that yes, you had your own journey through it as well. Look at your life through the lens of the gospel when your love for the Lord starts growing cold. When all the, distra- all, the, all the distractions of your life blind you from the light of the glorious son of God, Isaac in this chapter, we're going to see him come alive to faith once again. He has lived for his stomach, but there's going to be a part where he starts seeing through the eyes of faith. Because this is what can happen even for the believer. We allow all the distractions in our life to numb us to the feel of the Holy Spirit 
to deafen us, to deafen us to the music of heaven because we're listening so much of the noise of earth. Maybe today you're like Jacob and you have, or you have a loved one like Jacob. You didn't start off great. In fact, your life has been marked by sin. I want to encourage you with these words from Augustine of Hippo. I posted these on my Facebook page because I was going through my sermon. This, I'd, I'd, I'd read this before from, from Augustine and I was like, okay, I'm going to look this up and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I feel like this applies even to me, even though I am a believer, even though I am a pastor, is that my love can grow cold sometime and I need God to shout through my deafness. Let me read it to you. Late have I loved you. Beauty so old, so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged in to those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You have called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Unfortunately, dear Christian, dear believer, we do let our hearts grow cold. In fact, in Revelation, as God is speaking to the churches, not to the world, not to sinners, not to unbelievers, he's talking to Christians. He says, I have this against you. Your love has grown cold. Do the things you did at first. Has your love grown grown cold? It's time for us to shout out again. Scream into my deafness to where I can break through my deafness. May your replenishing glory open up my eyes once again to the thing that truly matters in my life. How many people, when they first become saved, they have this testament of you were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant after you. And then you see them get into the world and they have no desire for the Lord anymore. Here's your wake-up call. The Lord wants to shout through your deafness. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to obtain the peace which is yours. And maybe today, maybe if this is the only thing you get from this sermon today, it's come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. Let's move on here or I'm not going to get very far. We got a lot of ground to cover. I really have two points. It's Jacob's blessing and Esau's curse. But don't let that fool you. This is a full-length sermon. Um, We have 22 verses to cover here. Um, I don't even have them all on my page because they couldn't fit. So I'm going to use my my Bible um, as I go along here. 18 through 29 is Jacob's blessing. One of the harder theological concepts believers have always had is God's sovereignty and his foreknowledge that God is really in control. Isaac has a problem with this too. Isaac knows what God spoke to Rebekah, that that the the younger would serve the elder. He even lived that in his own life because Ishmael was cast out, the older and the younger born from the spirit. Isaac was the one who carried on the family line. He knows this, but he is trying to fight against God's decree. He It's not so much the cultural pressure. No, no, he loves 
he loves Esau more than Jacob. So he doesn't care what God has to say. He will do what he wants to do. But he finds out something very different. Isaac has a problem with this too. He knows God has spoken. He's chosen Jacob over Esau. But Esau is Isaac's favorite. I'm not going to bring the whole argument to close about God's sovereignty today for you, but I just want to, I want to encourage you with two things, because it doesn't matter what you call yourself. These two things are clear in Scripture. One, God is completely sovereign, and two, you are completely responsible for your own choices. God is completely sovereign. You are completely responsible for your own choices. Isaac in here, he knows something's up. He might be old, he might be blind, but he's not stupid. He had just sent Esau out to go hunting. And here's Jacob, he pops up right away. Now I know some of you guys are hunters, you probably understand this so much better than me. Because I'm like, okay, what if he just like, you know, found some pigeons or whatever and killed them and brought them back? Those of you hunters know that even with modern hunting equipment, with all of your ways of doing things that go so far over my head, And some of you have bows and arrows, I know, but your bow and arrow is so much more advanced than Esau's. And you know, you're reading this. Yeah, of course, Esau couldn't be back already. He's supposed to be hunting wild game. That takes some time. It takes some patience. And then cooking it? Isaac might be old and he might be blind, but he isn't stupid. He knows something's up. How did Esau get back so fast? Isaac is suspicious because Jacob doesn't sound like Esau. And the time just doesn't match up. As the great philosopher Judge Judy said, if it doesn't make sense, it didn't happen. (laughs) Verses 18 through 21. So he went and said to his, went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that I may, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. His, uh, his spidey sense is tingling. Something's not right here. He is, but uh, it seems to check out as well because he smells and feels like his son Esau, even though he sounds like Jacob. Taking the Lord's name in vain, that is what Jacob is doing here. When we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, we think about using the Lord's name as a swear word, you know, the OMG type of a deal. And that is blasphemy. That is taking the Lord's name in vain the holy of holies, and to make it something commonplace. But there's two other expressions, broad categories of using the Lord's name in vain. You can go back to my sermon, The Way Back Machine. It's during the Ten Commandments on the commandment of taking not the Lord's name in vain. And I explain one of them that's not very often used, and that is using the Lord's name like it's a spell. And we do this, unfortunately, in a lot of churches when we say in Jesus' name, and what we really mean is, here's my magic word to make God do what I want. The seven sons of Sceva did this to drive out a de- some demons, and the demons stripped them naked and beat them out of town. They were itinerant Jewish exorcists. It was part of their incantation. They were using the name of Christ. They would use the name of David or Solomon. In fact, they're still an occult. I'm kind of getting off on the weeds here, but it's kind of interesting. There's still a, an occult branch of that called the Seal of Solomon. But anyway, the, type, the third type is right here. This is where we claim 
This is where we claim the blessing of God, the voice of God, to give our pathetic attempts at deception some validity. And that's what Jacob does. Because the Lord, your God, you notice the distancing language too, right? The Lord, your God, granted me success. He has opened the Lord to open shame here. He has taken the name of the Lord, his God, in vain. Jacob is the original hypocrite. I mean that literally. The Greek word um, that we get from the English for hypocrite is hypocritus. It is not someone who fails to live up to their ideals. That's kind of what we say today. Like somebody is a Christian or they whatever, they don't live up to their ideals or like they're a hypocrite. That's not what a hypocrite means. A hypocrite is somebody playing the part. You see, if LeBron James says, I want to I make 100 goals, I want to make 100 baskets in a game, and he only gets 85, he's not a hypocrite. But if LeBron James starts going around saying, I am a professional golfer, look at my neat swag and everything, I am the next Tiger Woods, he's a hypocrite because he's not a professional golfer. golfer. It's not somebody who struggles with sin, but it's a deceiver. The Greek used was, word for, was used as an actor on stage who's pretending to be someone else. Look at the hypocrites on stage. They're pretending to be other people. He wore the skins. He wore the skins of, he wore the skins and told his father he was Esau. He was playing a part, but he was doing in such a way to deceive his father. His father was not in on the fun. In his hypocrisy, he also made, he took the name of the Lord in vain. He opened up the Lord to public ridicule. We find this as we go a couple chapters further and we see Laban, we see Laban, his future father-in-law, saying around here, we do not prefer the younger to the older. You are not a hypocrite if you struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. You are a hypocrite if you pretend you don't struggle with sin. Former pastor of Hillsong, New York, Carl Lentz, was very publicly seen as a hypocrite revealed as a hypocrite. And here's the thing. I mean, I feel bad for him and his family. I feel worse that the name of the Lord was open to public disgrace over this. And think, I mean, I, of course, I was like, okay, here's another guy, you know, doing this. And then I was hearing some person, political commentator, I don't know. It was just a clip on, uh, clip on my Instagram. And they were talking about, hey, here's this guy who acts like he's above the fray of us common mortals, but he's doing the same thing that everyone else does. And what he was doing is he would go around having these affairs. The women he was having affairs with didn't know he was a pastor, didn't know any of these things, didn't know he was married. He is putting on this persona. Jacob, this is what he is doing. He is opening up the Lord to open disgrace. He, is, he, he was afraid of seeming like he was mocking his dad, but he was indeed mocking his dad's blindness. He presented, um, also, you're a hypocrite if you bless the Lord with your mouth, but your heart is far from him. You may have sang songs today, but was your heart there? You say, bless the Lord, O my soul, but do you mean bless the Lord, O my soul, in your heart? If Jacob liked the theater, because the hypocrite comes from the theater, he is going to have a lot of that in his life, more than he can stomach. In verses 20 through, 22 through 27 is startling when I put this together for you here as we see this deception 22. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Once again, Esau, Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf, crazy hairy guy. 
23, and he, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? Doesn't this make your heart hurt? His poor blind dad who's bedridden will die at any point in time. And so many times, and this is in our life too, the Lord gives us so many warnings before we go through with our sin. None of us can say, oh, there was no warning. Why did God allow this? Why did God make me do this? He did not do anything of the sort. He warned you over and over and over. So Jacob replies, he answered, I am. I am. The name of the Lord means I am. Then he said, bring it, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank and then, um, then his father Isaac said to him, come near me and kiss me, my son. Verse 27. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. He kissed him. Would you portray the son of man with a kiss? Long before a good thousand, maybe 2,000 years before the time of Jesus Christ, a father betrays his son with a kiss. We look at Judas and we think, I could never be like Judas. Well, Jacob isn't Judas either, but he betrayed his father with a kiss, with an intimate gesture, but his heart was far from him. And we see this blessing this blessing he got through deceit. It was part of God's will, but he, God did not need Jacob's deception to accomplish his will. If Jacob and his mother didn't deceive their father, God's will still would have been enacted. Jacob's blessing mirrors in many ways the blessing God gave to Abraham, then to Isaac. A blessing is not a well-wishing. It's a conferring of the word of the Lord from one to another. In this case, from one generation to the next, a covenant which would last forever. The blessing tr truly is not only just for Jacob, but to all as well. Not the specifics, but the blessing of, the, of, of his life and of his people are a blessing to us as well. The blessing right here is, the blessing we see as we look at this is a promise of a good land, of rain, of increase in the field. A promised land for him and his descendants. Preeminence, meaning top billing amongst his family and a repeat of the blessings and curse associated with the Abrahamic covenant. This blessing was God's will, but Jacob's actions in getting it will haunt him his entire life. God didn't need Jacob's help to do what he, God wanted to do. He uses, true, God uses this deception, but Jacob has plenty of other choices he could have made. And how do we know this? Well, one, we can just trust in the sovereignty of God. But also we have many examples in the scripture of somebody being told, being given a blessing, being given even a position in the, in the um, salvation history of God who did not choose to, choose to gain it by through, through sin. Our, probably our greatest example of that is David. David is anointed as king of Israel. He knows he's anointed as king of Israel. He is told by the prophet. He's not given a second or third hand. He's told directly by the prophet he is anointed as the king of Israel, that God has rejected Saul, yet he doesn't try to take it for himself. 
If he was to follow Jacob, he should go in, kill Saul, become king. God gives Saul into his hands twice. And both times, he refuses to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, even though God had rejected Saul. And God, God put these things in his path. Will he be somebody like Jacob? No, he decides, no. Even though God has ordained this, I do not have to sacrifice my soul to gain the world. For what good is it? What profit is a man to gain, to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? Sometimes in the midst of our suffering and our pain, we think, okay, maybe, okay, I know God wants this eventual outcome, so I'm going to skip to that part of it. In the doing so, you will find more trouble than you could ever imagine. But if you follow the Lord, even in the details, you'll see blessing upon blessing that comes. The best blessings are the ones that are in the spirit and the heart. As we move from this in verses 30 through 40, we see Esau's blessing. Verse 30 is filled with suspense. As I mentioned last week, commentator Lighthammer said this story right here in the scripture, this, of, this retelling of events is written in such a way to keep us on the edge of our seats. Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. Gulp. <laughs> you know, Esau is not a guy to trifle with. In fact, Esau... All of his self-control is to wait until the morning after his father's done, um, after his father has died. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill that guy now, his own brother. It's, it, there's this suspense right here. In verse 30, Jacob leaves and nearly crosses paths with Esau. Yikes. You know, never want to see the person you've wronged, right? Stay away for a while. Verse 31 and 32 Verses 31 and 32, we see Esau coming in and him speaking to his father. And he uses so many of the words that Jacob had used. He also, um, verse 31, he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless him. 32, his father, Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Verse 33, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Isn't it interesting how someone in your life can say something on Tuesday, somebody else repeat the exact same thing on Thursday? Those are times for us to pay attention. Esau, when he brings food to Isaac, has the same thing to say as Jacob. It's as though, and very likely, that God encouraged both of them to say the same thing as a message to Isaac. Isaac tried to thwart God's will, and he has failed. This is the jolt that brings Isaac from his spiritual blindness into spiritual sight, because he will act from faith from this point on. Trembling violently, that's what many of your translations says, mine has trembled very violently. Isaac has this extreme reaction to the revelation of Jacob's deception. He trembles violently. The human author of Genesis by the power of the Holy Spirit was Moses. And in Moses' time, this this word, which is a three-word compound word, is used to describe earthquakes. It's used to describe the presence of the Lord in Exodus chapter 19, when the Lord descends on the mountain and is covered in smoke and fire and trembles violently. Isaac's eyes are opened. Isaac's eyes are finally open. I don't mean this physically. He still can't see much, but his spiritual eyes are open. 
God's decision to elevate Jacob, his, Isaac's least favorite son, over Esau, his favorite son. He has tried to stop this and he has been found wanting. He has found out where the limits of man's free will and God's free will really are. He has found out what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. I think I've got that for you to put on, this, on the board here. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This does not mean we don't have choices, we don't have a plan in God's will, but when God has willed something, no one can stop it. Amen. He reaches out his hand, and no one can turn it back. Isaac's eyes are opened and he's starting to see by faith and he will not take back this blessing. We'll get into that in a second here. When, I, when Esau asked not once but twice for that blessing, why Isaac could not take it back and why he could not just give that same blessing to Esau. But let's look at Esau right here in verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me, O my father. I want to talk about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Because we see Esau right here, and the words, that is, the words in the Hebrew that, where it says that he cried out a bitter cry, with the connotations of it, where it kind of comes from, is an animal crying out in his death throes, without dignity, without restraint weeping bitterly. And us, we look at that and we're like, okay, well, he seems like he's repentant. We'll throw around the word repentant. All we really mean is somebody's sad about the consequences of their sins. And he's devastated. He finally understands what he didn't understand before, that the blessing of the firstborn actually means something. That to say, I am the, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau would have been really great. But now he's lost it. And he seeks it. He weeps. He's like an animal that's been caught in a trap. And he's screaming and crying. And I'm sure snot is flying and everything. Yet, he doesn't receive the blessing. He does not receive the blessing of the firstborn. He is very sorry, but not because of what this means between his relationship with God and him, but only the consequences of this. He understands he has lost something that actually means something. In Hebrews 12, verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he desired, speaking of Esau, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Tears are not repentance. Crocodiles cry, but they also have sharp teeth. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a number of pastors whose name was Jimmy. Um, I don't know what the significance of that is. One of them, he's pretty famous, uh, Jimmy Swagger, when he was found out doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing with people he shouldn't have been doing them with, he's on stage and there is tears and snot and he's like, I have sinned. You know what I didn't know about that? Is he went straight back to it. Yeah. He, he, he weeps, he mourns, but he has no repentance because repentance is a change. It's a walking away. It's a walking away. It's a, it's a change in heart and mind. Worldly sorrow is, is being sad over it. Godly sorrow is that if there was no consequence to my actions, I am devastated in my heart because I have hurt the very heart of God. My sin drove Christ to the cross. 
My sin alienates me from the one my heart loves. Um, I've been given permission to share this. If you tell me things, I don't just preach them on a Sunday morning, but Alan Larson has given me a permission to share some of his testimony. And I, as I was writing my sermon, I was like, okay, this is great. So once again, Alan has given me permission. Um, Alan has dealt with alcoholism for a good portion of his life. He had lost a lot of things through it. And one day in, uh, when he was on a bender, and, um, and you can correct the record after I'm done. Don't correct me while I'm preaching. I'll correct the record next week if I'm saying anything wrong. Um, during one of his benders, he had a, there was a police chase, and he ended, up, uh, he ended up striking one of the police officers. And everybody knows, you know, you don't do that. He was uh, in jail. He's looking, and he, he had a great amount of worldly sorrow, yes, realizing that if things go the way they should go, he should be in prison for the rest of his life. He is sitting in solitary confinement with nothing to do but to read the Bible and to pray. And it's there that God softens his heart. He becomes saved. He becomes sorrowful because of what he's done to the very heart of God. And God led him to this, that when it comes to trial, don't lie. His lawyer, his lawyer was telling him, lie about it. Don't tell them about it. Because if you do this, and I can't remember the specifics, they're going to throw the book at you. But he decided, no, that. What I've done to the very heart of God, that's what I care about, not about the consequences. I mean, I did the crime I should do at the time. So he gets before the judge. He lays it all out. And the judge, and I don't know if the judge was a believer or not, Alan, you can tell me later, but uh, has mercy on him and he serves a very small sentence. And now Alan goes to the prisons on a regular basis and he tells those prisoners of a God who redeems and saves. And he encourages them with godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas, God, whereas worldly grief produces death. A person can say that they are sorry, even cry, cry and wail as Esau is doing right here. But if there is no change, if it's just emotions, it means nothing. Godly grief produces repentance. A change not even just in actions, but in their very mindset. Esau, Esau is so very sorry that he, has, that, he has, that he has lost his birthright and his blessing, but he still doesn't want God. God may have chosen Jacob over Esau, but with, even within God's decree, there's so much decision that Esau could have made that would have led to a life of, a life of blessing, but he doesn't do this. And we have an example of this. So Esau is passed over for his younger son. That's tough, but big deal. Considering every blessing you have comes from God anyway. See, this is the evil of envy. Is it, it tells God, all the blessing you've given me, it's just trash because I'm looking at the blessing of somebody else. And it's a slap to the face of God. Esau has tremendous blessing in his life. He could have focused on that and he could have inquired of the Lord, Lord, how can I still be part of your plan even though I'm not the one to lead the family after, after my, my father? We have examples of this in scripture. Many examples, but I'm just going to give you two. Moses, the earthly writer of this, he is not the firstborn of his father. He is the secondborn, secondborn son. His brother Aaron, three years older than him. Aaron doesn't work against Moses. He grumbles at times, and there's another time where he really bad decision to make a golden calf. And his sister actually starts uh, talking smack about Moses's wife, and then God strikes her with leprosy. But by and large, he's part of God's plan under Moses. 
The older serves the younger, but he serves the younger. That was the prophecy. The older serving the younger. But his repentance is not real, so he doesn't have the blessing of Aaron. And here's the biggest one. And not so much brothers, but cousins. John the Baptist is born before Jesus, but John the Baptist, he says of Jesus that he's not worthy to untie his sandals. He says, I must decrease, he must increase, because his heart was a heart after Christ. His heart was a heart after God the Father. Esau's heart is only looking at and having self-pity about what he's lost. He may have a right to be upset about this, but his heart is far from the Lord, and those tears are crocodile tears. Verse 35, he inquires after his father if he has another blessing for him. In verse 35, and he said, your, your brother has, this is Isaac, your brother has, dece- has came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Verse 36, and Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau asks for another blessing here. He feels real bad. Why doesn't Isaac just take back the blessing he had given Jacob and give it to Esau instead? Because here's the truth. Some things once done cannot be undone. The physical consequences are there for you. David, King David, man after God's own heart. He repents after he sins with Bathsheba, but the sword never leaves his house. What he has taught his sons follows him the days of his life. Some things once done cannot be undone. God redeems, God restores. We talk about so many other people in the scripture, but we do still have consequences for our decisions. In high school, I was a very outspoken Christian. And sometimes I think that kind of put a target on my back with my teachers. In our current events class, this is when I was a, a middle schooler. And I used to think I was a really mature middle schooler. And then I talked with, I already get some laughs because we all know, right, that that's a myth. Anyway, I thought I was a really mature middle schooler, mature for my age. And I remember talking with my um, uh, first uh, youth pastor to youth pastor's wife. They're missionaries right now, Paul and Patty Durbin. And I was talking about, I was chaperoning uh, junior high camp. And I was like, oh, these junior hires. And they kind of... Patty, my, my youth pastor's wife, she called me on it. She's like, you were the, you were the junior hire of junior hires. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. I was so mature. They're like, you're enthusiastic. You weren't mature. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, don't you remember on 4th of July, they were, me and, they were uh, taking us out on the lake and we were tu- me and my friend were tubing. And I thought it'd be hilarious that when it got really fast, when he, was, when he turned to me and said, wouldn't it hurt to fall off right now? I then pushed him off. And then when we were on the boat, uh, Paul was wearing his glasses. We're on a lake, and I pushed him in. He came back up without his glasses and somehow got them back out. So anyway, I was very high strung. I was junior high. That's all, this, that's all some background about how I responded to this. My one teacher in current events class went over this story about this woman who had murdered somebody else with an axe. I'd watched the movie, So I Married an Axe Murder around this time, so this stuck in my head all this time. And so I remember this, and I remember my teacher kind of, I think he was trying to give me some grief here, and he was like, okay, so the deal with the story is that, so she's in prison, and she gets saved. She really does get saved. She has a genuine conversion experience. She marries, 
She marries the chaplain who had attended her at the, at the uh, prison. They got married. And I don't know how that marriage really worked with her being in the prison, but whatever it did. And so he's saying, well, well, you know, God has forgiven her. Shouldn't the state forgive her and let her loose? And I think he was trying to, once again, goad me. And so I, I responded back in my little teenager fashion. I said, is the guy she murdered with the ax still dead? And he, my, my teacher at the time, he's like, I don't want to have a theological conversation with you. And I'm like, it seems like you do, though. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, that is great. And when she dies, she'll be with the Lord. But she still murdered that dude with an ax, and she got a fair trial. Um, she will have great rejoicing. And if the man she murdered with the axe, when he meets her in heaven, will applaud her as she walks in. But she still has the, she still has the consequences of her decision. In verse 36, I read that to you. He is heartbroken. He is upset. Hurts multiply. There's something I've noticed in this scripture right here with Esau and his response his unrestrained response at this hurt. The first hurt wasn't so bad. He may not have liked it, but he really doesn't kick up a fuss. He doesn't give, you know, Jacob the one-two, you know, after he steals his birthright with a, with a, yeah, his uh, blessing, um, yeah, his birthright with the red, the red stuff. But now we have the second one right here, and he is furious. He's like, you rightly named him Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. It means a deceiver, a con man. I remember I was doing children's church one time and we were playing uh, the game um, where you sit down. Oh yeah, Duck, Duck, Goose. And that's what it's named, not Duck, Duck, Gray Duck, Minnesotans. Duck, Duck, Goose. <laughs> we're playing Duck, Duck, Goose. And um, these two boys, they were cousins. They thought it'd be hilarious as kids are running around to grab their ankle, to grab their heel. I think I understand the connotations of Jacob being called heel grabber and how that meant deceiver. And Esau's upset. He's like, rightly, have you named him deceiver, usurper, heel grabber? He's grabbed my heel, not once, but twice. He is furious. He's angry enough to kill him. I think sometimes in our life, when it comes to those that we love the most, that should love us the most, when they hurt us, the first time, we kind of overlook it. The second time, we get upset. Then all of a sudden, we think that something happens, and it's not actually not that big of a deal, but we're devastated because hurts, especially those whom we love, they don't add, they multiply. And it's not so much this one time, it's every time. And we'll be like, rightly, is they, are they named heel grabber? Verses 37 through 38 we get the answer. Well, actually, we don't get the answer here. We get the answer in another book of the Bible about why Isaac does not take this blessing back. In verse 37, Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. It's just words, right? Why doesn't, why doesn't, why doesn't Isaac just take that back, give it to Esau, and do a different blessing for, for Jacob? That's a question everybody who's ever read this has asked. Why doesn't Isaac just take back this blessing, give it to Esau, give Jacob a different blessing? It's not clear here, but as John Knox said, when we come to a scripture that's not clear, we should look for another one that is clear. 
And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, clears this up for us. It says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. He was operating in the flesh when he wanted to give the blessing of the firstborn to Esau. He's now operating according to the Holy Spirit by faith. And blessing isn't just a well wish. It's not something you can take from one and give to another. That's why when I bless you at the end of service, I go from the scriptures. I don't make up my own. Because what blessing do I have to give you other than what the Lord has blessed you? To, for you to remember the scriptures that call you blessed. He's not able to give that because he's operating in faith. If he's still operating in the flesh, no problem. But now operating in faith, he can only do what the God's will, God has willed him to do. In verse 39 through 40, this is where we see Esau's blessing. Now you do that in quotes. As Pastor Steve Lawson had said, this sounds more like a curse. We read it, then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of he heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and by your and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There's an interesting bit of history right here. When Rebecca was having such big problems in, in utero with Jacob and Esau, she inquired of the Lord, and he told her, two nations are in your stomach right now. And we see that in history because we have, I, we have um, Jacob, who will be named Israel. We call the people of Israel today the people of Israel. And then Esau, his people would be known as Edom. Edom, during the time of Saul, this is all after the time this was written. God, God fulfills his promise. But anyway, um, Edom is conquered by Saul and made a client state. A client state serves the head state. Edom serves Israel in perpetuity through the nation of Israel, through the time of the established kingdom, when they lose it in the exile and they regain it, they regain Edom. And then Edom finally does rebel in the time of Herod the Great, just according to the promise and prophecy God had spoken through, through um, Isaac. I almost called him Esau, Isaac. And what's more, we know from history, you know from biblical history and through history, the Edomites, they were like an ancient Near East version of the Vikings. They didn't really grow food much. They didn't really have a lot of animals. They ate what they took from others. They would go on their little expeditions. They would then conquer those different areas, not conquer them, but just raid them. Um, the original raiders, and they weren't even from Las Vegas. God's word remains true. So it's done. The older serves the younger according to the word of God, not just in their lifetimes, but in the lifetimes to come. Their yoke is eventually broken as well. But the story is not done. What does this mean for you and for me today? Worship team, you can come up at this time. Here's what it means. I said this at the beginning. Your story is not done. Are you in the middle of something right now? Your story is not done. Your story is not done. You have no clue. If God showed you all the things in your life at the beginning, at the beginning of your salvation, at the beginning when you, when you bowed the knee to the Lord, when you decided to make him Lord of your life, if he showed you his plan for you, you'd probably be in a mental hospital for a while because you couldn't handle it. I know I couldn't handle it. I know everything I thought it would be like wouldn't be like that, but in some ways, in so many, in the most important ways, it would be better than my plans. 
Or maybe you have a family member who's like Jacob, living this deceitful life, who's like the prodigal son. I want to encourage you with this. Their story isn't done either. Their story isn't done either. When I had read from Augustine there, I was thinking of family members I have, and I, my heart was just breaking, or just loved ones. It might be late, but late, as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is time. For those of you who are hearing the stirring of the Lord today, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. You may not live to the afternoon. Today is the day of salvation. But here's the hope for us who pray for for those in our family. The story isn't done. This isn't the last word. Your current mess or future mess will be a message according to the power of God. And the third one is look at this through the gospel lens. The gospel lens. If Jacob couldn't use, here's the, here's the fourth thing for us. If Jacob couldn't use ungodly means to gain a godly goal, don't think you can as well. Examine your ways and understand your thoughts and your desires. Do not do what so many do and try to overlook these things because you're doing something else where you're serving God. That's what Saul did. When, when Saul disobeyed God, he, he told the prophet when he came over, why are you so upset? I did what God asked, more or less. And that's what we do, right? We try to bribe God. Hey, God, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this in my personal life, but I give a lot to church. So you should be fine, right? God's like, that right there, that's what I want. There's nothing, there's no aspect in the human existence that God, sovereign overall, does not look at and cry, mine. We look at those men and women of faith who fell, morally, ethically, spiritually, in every way. It's because they told themselves, I can do this on the side because I'm serving God over here. And they think that they could have ungodly means to gain a godly goal. God will accomplish his will. Your whole world is relationship to him. Your whole world is relationship to him. We want to pontificate about the sovereignty of God, about God's plan in this world, great. But understand this, for you, what's relevant is your relationship with God now. Now. Know that you can, you can never be so holy as not to sin. You can never be so spiritual that if you neglect your relationship with God, your love for him cannot grow cold. The worship team's going to lead us in our final song this morning. This is our chance to respond to this scripture. I think the wrong response is for us to be like, at least I'm not like Isaac and Jacob. The right response is without the Holy Spirit, that is where I'm at. To examine our life, to to ask ourselves, am I doing something similar? Is there a blind spot? I'm like, God, overlook this because I'm doing all these other things. Finally, are you crushed in spirit? Are you going through something right now? Be encouraged. This isn't the last word. Jacob's story doesn't end in chapter 27. It actually doesn't even end in Exodus. The end of the beginning is in Revelation because in Revelation, he'll be on those streets of gold with us. And we'll be able to speak to him and ask him, what was it like to wrestle with the angel of the Lord? 
and to have your name switched from Jacob to Israel. And he'll say, what was it like to live in a time where the Holy Spirit dwelled inside of you? And he might have been asked the question that we probably don't want to be asked, which is, how could you still sin when the Holy Spirit was inside of you? Maybe we won't say any of these things. Maybe we will just lock arms and we'll dance around the throne of God together. Your story isn't done. Your mess will be a message. And when you look at this through the gospel view, you realize that there's somebody holding you up. You're not letting anyone down. There's somebody holding you up.